Good morning. It's my privilege today to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Max Sturdivant. My wife Eva and I have known Max for the past 30 years. We first met him right before he moved here from Mississippi to become the youth pastor at First Baptist Church. He served faithfully and well in that position for many years. Since then, he's been the chaplain at Western State Hospital. He's taught at a seminary, and he served as a licensed counselor currently serving our soldiers and families at Fort Campbell. Max and his wife, Carol, are members here at New Work. Max is one of the most humble, decent, and honorable people that I know. He's a great example to me and many others of what a follower of Christ should live his life like. I'm very excited to hear what message the Lord has laid on Max's heart today, and I believe you will be also. So would you please join me in welcoming our guest speaker, Dr. Max Sturdivant. Thank you, uh, Andrew, for that kind introduction. I'm, uh, I just give God the glory. I'm so humbled by that, and, uh, and I certainly appreciate so much Andrew and, and Eva. Um, <laughs> this morning, when I did the 8 o'clock service, I put my water, I got to tell you this story, I put my water down here, and well, guess what? You know what happened. I mean, I'm talking, and I kicked it, and it just rose over, you know, the stage, so I go pick it up nonchalantly as if I had that planned. I didn't. Uh, but uh, anyway, things happen. I'm so honored to be here. Take your Bibles, and let's turn to the book of John. John chapter 4. And there are some verses I want to read. I'm kind of a lengthy passage I want to read, but, but uh, what I want to do this morning is, after we read this, I want to uh, talk about four uh, critical truths that, that are from this account. So, let's begin with John chapter 4. And by the way, if, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Uh, uh, and you can grab one, should be one. And if you don't have a Bible, just keep it, right? Just keep it. Take it home, it's yours, and read it, okay? So let's begin with John chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 3. So he, Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Shekar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long uh, walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket she said, and, and this well is very deep, where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? You know, I, I would love it if at that point Jesus would have said, yeah. Um, how, can you offer better wage, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? 
Jesus replied, anyone who drinks the water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling, rushing spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the one you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when uh, it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews or through the Jews. But the time is coming instead, indeed is here and now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am he, I am the Messiah. Look at verse 28. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. In verse 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So Jesus stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves, now we know he is indeed the Savior of the world. Kind of a lengthy passage to read, but oh man, it is so full of uh, so full of, of great truths, and and I'm going to highlight a few this morning. Barna Research Group a few years ago investigated American perceptions of Jesus. Why do Americans? What do Americans believe about Jesus? And the research identified the following beliefs. Here they are. Number one, the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Second, younger generations are less likely to believe Jesus was God. Third, Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. Fourth, most Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And when I looked at that, I wondered, I, you know, how much of that is reflective of cultural Christianity, not true discipleship? 
It was just something I thought about. And, and the fifth belief they identified is this. People are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. Well, it matters what we believe, right? It does. It matters what we believe. We live in a culture today that promotes the philosophy that truth is whatever it is to you. It's whatever it is to me. And this permeates all fields of study, not just theology, all, all areas of life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth isn't what mankind says it is. Truth is from God. It is from God, the God of the Bible, the one and only God. And understand that all truth is God's truth. The truth comes from God. This morning, I want to look at four critical truths from this account of the woman at the well. And these truths indicate necessary changes in direction, I believe, in our ways of thinking about God, our views about him, and, and changes in our ways of thinking about ourselves and people. So truth number one, <clears throat> Jesus invaded what he created to reach people. Now, Jesus leaves no doubt about who he is. If you read the Gospels and the epistles, he is God. He is creator. And it can't be denied. You have to make a choice, right? You have to make a choice whether you're going to submit to the truth that God's revealed. As I said, God invaded what he created, and, and, and he did this um, because he loves us, because he's, he's not silent, and he's got something to say. Now, if you look at John chapter 1, in the beginning, uh, John chapter 1 says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. And in verse 14 of John 1, uh, the Scripture says, So the Word became human and dwelt among us, lived among us. His life brought light to everyone. Jesus in human flesh invaded what He created to reach people, to reach you. He knows you. He knows who you are. He loves you very much. Now, I love to talk about the love of God. I'll talk about his holiness, but I love to talk about the love of God. And he loves you. The Gospel of John records seven signs that give evidence of Jesus' divinity, that he's God. When Jesus turned the water into wine, the first sign in the book of John, he manipulated matter. He changed matter, and only God can manipulate matter and change it. The woman at the well in the account, in this account, meets God. Now, I doubt that you'll ever meet God in, in the flesh again. Jesus is on his throne in glory. One day we'll see him when he returns. And, and I doubt that you'll ever have an encounter uh, with him at the well like this woman did. But understand that the spiritual is more important than the physical and Jesus wanted her to understand this but and that means that any of us you know maybe we haven't met Jesus in the flesh like 
you know, this woman and others in that time of special revelation. But, but we can meet God in spirit, and that encounter is just as real. Because as I said, the spiritual is more important than the physical. And Jesus wanted the woman at the well uh, to know that her great need was spiritual. Jesus said to her, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. As creator, Jesus loves the world. The Bible describes the diversity of his creation. Read Psalm 148. Maybe write that down and read it later. The very act of his creation of the world reveals his love for diversity. Such diversity denotes variety and inclusion. Such diversity and variety challenge the church to be inclusive of all peoples. He created order. His created order reflects his character he loves diversity, and therefore, he loves all of humanity. Jesus loves the world, and he looks at people differently. Jesus, I mean, he, he really kind of messed things up in, in Jewish culture and history and tradition. He inverted cultural norms because Jesus speaks to a woman at the well. And the fact that he talks to a Samaritan woman makes it more incredulous to his disciples and the Jews of Jesus' day. Now, let me give you a little background. All right, following the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. to the, Assyrian, to the Assyrians, excuse me, following that, Jews disdained the Samaritans who were not viewed as pure-blooded Jews. And when the Assyrians conquered Israel, they transported the conquered Jews to other conquered sites and repopulated the partially vacated sites with other conquered peoples. So it was really a mixing and intermingling of different people groups. And the result led to certainly a, a mixing of races, and Samaritans were the offspring from relations between conquered Jews and the Assyrians or other conquered peoples. And in Jewish culture, they disdained the Samaritans. They despised them. They had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with them. They, they viewed them as inferior. Now, also in Jewish culture, uh, Jewish men didn't talk to women, including their wives in public. Women were, viewed, uh, women were viewed as inferior. And Jews viewed Samaritans as inferior. And Jesus asked the woman at the well for a drink. He talks to her. He has a conversation with her. Her genes didn't distract them. Now, I'm not talking about genes you wear, but G-E-N-E-S, okay? Her genes didn't distract him. Her sordid history didn't dissuade him from talking to her. He looked at her differently. He loved her. Didn't matter to him her background. Didn't matter to him anything about, you know, about her, the fact that she was a, a Samaritan. Didn't matter. You know, I, I'll share this with you. I, I was always bothered when I would go growing up I would go, you know, go to Sunday school in the morning, and, and, and sometimes I would hear conversations about, 
okay, you know, this race came from this group, and, you know, this race came from this uh, you know, this particular uh, uh, group and, you know, and, and people in, in Sunday school talking about, you know, races and origin, origin of races. And I'm like, you know, I look back on that even now and I just say, man, it, it's, it's just a waste of time. Why do you want to do that? Because we all have a common ancestry. And that common ancestry is Adam and Eve. God loves us. He looks at people differently. He, he, he doesn't see what we would like to see and we see in other people. He looks at people differently. Jesus leaves to keep an appointment. The scripture says he had to go through Samaria. He left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. Now, Jews of his day would, would bypass Samaria. They, Samaria. They would take the longer route to reach Galilee. Traveling to Galilee through Samaria was a faster route. It was. And Jesus took that route. But more importantly, Jesus had an appointment to keep. It was practical and divine. Okay? And Jesus' appointment with a woman at the well points to his love for people. His desire to reach people with the gospel. He was chasing after this woman just as God chases after all of us. And yet, he, he chases after each of us. And, 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 and this, when she meets Jesus, he was unlike any, any man she had ever met. <clears throat> Second Peter 3.9 says he... That God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He is for you. He's chasing after us. He, he loves us. The second truth, Jesus came to redeem sinful humanity. We are sinful, okay? We're sinful. I'm sinful. Man, I am so glad you can't look in my heart. Because if you looked inside my heart, you would say, whoa, I'm, don't think, you know, I don't know if I want to be around this guy. I mean, because, because I'm sinful, and, and there are thoughts and things in my heart that, that, that are not reflective of, of God's will. And, and, and I have to confess and come clean with God about those things in my heart. God looks at the heart. And, and, and we're sinful. Now, I'm going to tell this story. I tried this in the 8 o'clock service, and I only got a chuckle or two, so let me try it on you. A Sunday school teacher had just concluded her lesson, and she wanted to make sure she had made her point, and she was teaching a group of children, and she said, can anyone tell me what you must do before you can obtain forgiveness? And there was a short pause, and then a kid on the back row shouted out sin I'll let you you know I'm just not going to ever tell that joke again <laughs> all right well, I'm not embarrassed you know you got to try something all right um, it's true that we need God's forgiveness because of our sin and his forgiveness cost a very high and precious price his son 
Romans 3, Romans 3, 23. You remember that verse? I remember learning and, uh, this verse in college when I did all the different master life and other stuff that were done. Romans 3, 23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And when Jesus came to earth, when the Word became human, Jesus did not come to put on a magic show. Jesus' mission and work was not about mesmerizing others and taking away all the problems of the world, but to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Because our sin was the great human problem. Still is the problem. Jesus came to redeem us. Now, redeem has the idea of being freed through payment of a price or being bought with a price to be set free. And to be set free from the penalty of death. No one is better than anyone else. We have all sinned. Do you compare yourself to other Christians? I mean, do you? You, you come to church in the morning or, and, and you look at others and you're like, wow, I mean... They have it together. I mean, they are so, such, you know, they're so awesome and they're so perfect and they're more spiritual. And, you know, everything, you know, maybe you think everything seems to go right for them. I mean, you know, first of all, appearances can be deceiving, okay? But you look at yourself and, and you see yourself as one who has the hang-ups and the sin problems and the, and the uh, you know, just the difficulty and the hassles in life. And, and, and you look at yourself and, and you begin to talk to yourself and, and say things about yourself that, that, are, that are not positive and are not even accurate. Uh, you don't, you know, you're not like them. You're not as good as them. You're worthless. And when we say those things to ourselves, no one here has it all together. So let's be real. Let's be real. All God's children got hangouts. We do. Let's, be, let's just be real about that. But we are loved by the God of the Bible. I tell you what, I... You've gone through some tough times, and I've gone through some tough times. And, and there have been times that I didn't think God cared. I didn't think that he was there. I didn't think he cared. I mean, I was hurting so bad. I was, I was enthroned in, su enthroned in such, such um, distress and despair that I just didn't think God cared and, was, and, and he wasn't there. But, but in every one of those moments, I always recalled the cross. I cannot escape the cross. And when I think and remember the cross, I'm reminded that God does love me and that he's there and that he really cares. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's some kids out here today, and I know that I work with kids at the, at the post and and I enjoy working with them, and I work with all ages, but, but I have the opportunity to work with kids as well. And I know there are kids here today, you know, maybe you feel, you know, you're at school, and, and you feel like that, uh, you know, God doesn't care. You, you've got a bully in your life, and you're just feeling really down and feeling so upset about this. And I want you to know that God knows what's going on in your life. 
He knows. He cares about you. He sees you. And he sees all of us. And he knows all of us. He knows everything about us. In his conversation with the woman, he goes to the heart of her need. And that need is confession of her sin. In the Judean wilderness, remember, John the Baptist preached, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And people, the scripture says in Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew 3, that people from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, Jesus commended the prayer of the tax collector. They both, the scripture says, they both went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee prayed, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters and sinners and adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. The tax collector, the scripture says, stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Justified is a legal term used in the New Testament. Paul used it in, the, in his epistles frequently. Justified is a legal term that means not guilty. And when you and I confess to God that we've sinned and we trust in his atoning death on the cross and resurrection, when we trust in him to forgive us, uh, the Bible says that uh, uh, we're justified. We're justified by faith. We're no longer guilty. We're not guilty before God because of our faith in him. That means that 24-7, that I have got this righteousness of Jesus that covers me and all my sins. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sins. He sees the righteousness of Jesus and it's not because of anything I've done, because there was nothing I could do. It wasn't because of anything I did. It was because of what Jesus did. He paid the price for my sin. He satisfied God's wrath against my sin. And notice how Jesus speaks to her about her sin. He speaks with grace. He speaks without condemnation or a judgmental spirit. Do, do, you, do, do you benefit from a judgmental spirit? Let me ask you this. Have you ever, I mean, do you like it when someone comes to you and they begin to, you know, point out your faults and criticize you and they're just judging you and your motives i mean do you like being around people like that no no we don't like being people like that I, jesus isn't that kind of individual he spoke without condemnation or a judgmental spirit he shows patience and maybe one change in our attitudes we need to work on at the start of this new year is how we look at ourselves 
and how we look at others. Our attitudes toward others affect what we communicate and how we communicate with others. Jesus condemned hypocrites such as the Pharisees and teachers of the law of his day who denied their sin, but he commended those who didn't put on airs and acknowledged their sin before him. This is what we must do to experience salvation as we must admit, confess. Confess means to agree or to say the same thing. God says a sin, so do I. We must be willing to confess that we've sinned against God. Jesus is Savior. Not only we're sinful, but Jesus is our Savior. As Savior Jesus suffered for us, he suffered a cruel death on the cross. His death was horrific. The pain was horrific. The intent of the Romans in the process of execution on the cross was to inflict prolonged and intense physical suffering. And think about the, emo the, the spiritual and pain that he felt when he bore the sins of the world. He didn't become the sins of the world. He bore the sins of the world. That weight, that heavy, incredibly heavy weight of the sin of humanity, he bore it. And as Savior, he was the sacrifice for our sins. He was the only one who could satisfy God's anger against our sin. God was angry against our sin. I don't believe he, he didn't hate the sinner, but he hated our sin. And his death satisfied God's anger against our sin because he was the perfect lamb, the sinless Lord, the lamb without blemish. And as Savior, he was our substitute. Jesus died in our place. He was willing to die in our place when we deserve to die because of our sin. He didn't deserve to die on the cross, but because he is sinless, only he could, as I said, satisfy God's wrath against our sin. And he willingly went to the cross because he loves you. He loves us. We, it's, so I believe a lot of Christians just sort of lose sight of that in the, in the sort of the messes of life, the, the truth that God loves them. We need to live in his grace. Live in his grace. As Savior, Jesus is the living water. When Jesus speaks with her about the living water, he's talking about the salvation he offers her, salvation from her sin. From the beginning, God's plan for his planet was to save the world from their sin. If you look in John 22, verse 22, Jesus says, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. Now, Jesus didn't say salvation for the Jews. He said salvation 
from the Jews. Jesus is saying that God desires to reach all nations through Israel's praise of and trust in God, and that he, that Jesus, a Jew, would bring to fruition what God had willed and what God had initiated, this great salvation plan. Jesus proclaims to her, I am the Messiah. That's a dominant theme in the book of John, the I am statements, I am. Who revealed uh, to Moses, you know, what did God reveal to Moses about himself? I am. <laughs> Tell them I am. Tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. I am that I am has sent you. And so when Jesus is, is pronouncing, I am the Messiah, I am the living water, I am the bread of life, etc. I am the resurrection and the life. He is, he is proclaiming in clarity, I am God. I am God. He proclaims he's the Christ. Messiah means chosen one. I'm sorry. Uh, Messiah uh, uh, means chosen one. He proclaims he's the Christ, the chosen one, who would be the sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world, to redeem sinful humanity. Number three, truth number three, Jesus reveals God the Father is truth and spirit. Have you ever wondered what that really means uh, to, to worship God in truth and spirit? Well, let me just share some of these thoughts with you. Now, at this point, scholars suggest, some scholars suggest, that the woman at the well in verses 19 through 21 is hoping to sidestep the matter of her sordid past and avoiding facing herself and her sin. So she asks about the matter of the place of worship of God, which had been an ongoing theological dispute between the Jews and Samaritans. But Jesus keeps her on track. He keeps, her, he keeps her on track about the spiritual things that matter. Jesus reveals that the place of worship is not what's important. He reveals it's the heart of the worshiper that is most important. Now, Jesus makes a reference here to the time that's coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Now, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This, this reference to the time is coming, what, what, what is this? What was this time that was coming? It was his death on the cross. It was his death on the cross and his resurrection. And it's his death on the cross and resurrection that wrought the world and transformed human reality. To worship God in spirit. To worship God in spirit would be those who are heart possessors of the Holy Spirit. That is the result of salvation. And these heart possessors of the Holy Spirit would have the knowledge of Christ, of who he is, that he's Messiah, that he's God, and, and knowledge of the gospel. And that's the truth. We worship him in spirit 
as possessors of the Holy Spirit, and we worship him in truth because of our knowledge of his revelation, his incarnation, and his death and resurrection. I mean, we were worshiping a few moments ago. Did you, did you not find, did you not think about his death and resurrection? His incarnation? I mean, that's, that's truth. That's truth that God's revealed. And we have that knowledge. We have that knowledge as believers that he's the Messiah, that he's God, and knowledge of the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the gospel. That he died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. That's the gospel. And it happened. Okay, now that's a different sermon to talk about the to talk about the, the scripture and its uh, historicity, its, its validity, its authenticity, that's another, that's another sermon. But, but we can know that the resurrection occurred. The Bible says it happened. And because of the authenticity and the validity of the Bible, we can know it's true. The fourth and, and final truth. God sends us out to serve him despite our sin. Now, I want you to ponder for a moment the perspective, the life situation of the woman at the well. She had five previous marriages, ostensibly marriages that ended in divorce. Jewish tradition permitted three husbands, and she had long surpassed that more lenient rule. She was presently living with a man when she met Jesus. Let's kind of ponder a little bit about maybe her ways of thinking at, at this time in her life. Maybe she thought, I've been burned by other men, so why risk it? I'll just, I'll just live with the man I'm with right now. I would assume she felt rejected. Having that many broken relationships, dejected, rejected, brokenhearted, angry, worthless, Feelings of worthlessness, feeling used, shame, guilt, despised, and judged by others. I believe she bore a heavy burden, a great burden. It's interesting to note that she drew water from the well at noontime, the hottest time of the day as opposed to drawing water in the morning or evening when it was cool. It was the time she chose to avoid being around others, maybe. just didn't want to maybe hear the judgments or the criticisms or the put-downs or just the body language. We communicate mostly with our body, as you know, and, and there are those looks that we certainly can interpret as someone who is showing disdain or dislike or looking down on you. 
What about her attitudes toward God? Maybe she believed God was punishing her, that, that he didn't favor her or care about her. I have met a lot of people in my work as a clinical counselor, including Christians, who believe God is punishing them. No, that's, that's not accurate. It doesn't work that way. I'll tell you why. Because Christ bore your punishment on the cross. You're not being punished by God. Life can just be cruel. And then she meets Jesus. He didn't reject her. He didn't despise her. He didn't avoid or ignore her. He didn't try to take advantage of her. He was unlike any other man she had ever met. And he spoke to her with gentleness and love. She saw the face of God. She was in his presence. And she was never the same again. In her thinking, maybe she thought only God could know such things about me. Jesus pointed to her greatest need to be set free from her sin. Jesus took the mess of her life, the mess in her life, and turned it into a beautiful message, and her message reached others who believed in Jesus. We see from the passage that she goes and she begins, she goes to the village and she's going around and saying, listen, you got to meet this man who knew everything I ever did, <laughs> who knew about my sin. And it was beautiful. I feel free now. So maybe your life's in a mess. Isn't it time to allow Christ to turn it into a message to reach others? Do you want to be set free from shame and guilt that you feel? Isn't it time to change this trajectory of shame and guilt and feelings of worthlessness, thinking God can't forgive you, and just turn to him? Let me remind you, there is no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ will not cover. And I've met people who have said to me, man, you don't know me. I don't think God can forgive the things I've done. Yes, he can. He paid the price for that, those sins. So just confess to Jesus you've sinned against him. Receive his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Change that course, that direction you're on, and just turn to him and confess that you've sinned and receive his forgiveness and eternal life. He, he promises eternal life in the passage. He, he talks about uh, uh, the, the living water, giving them eternal life. This rushing water that gives eternal life. Well, let me finish by just sharing very quickly uh, 
a summation of what we've sort of explored and talked about. I've talked about four critical truths, but let me sort of break it down a little bit and share four takeaways I want you to take with you as you leave. First, God's love is never ending and unbending. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus will not cover. Second, there is no one that God cannot use in his kingdom's work. Three, the spiritual is more important than the physical in life. And four, what's in the heart determines our eternal destiny. What's in your heart? Oh, Jesus knows what's there. Are you willing to face it? Are you willing to come clean? Because if you want to get clean, you got to come clean about your sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you so much for this time together. And I thank you for the opportunity to just preach and just talk about your love and just, just brag on you, Jesus. Thank you. And yet I know that there are people in this place that are dealing with heavy burdens. Despair and dejection and just defeat and feelings of worthlessness and shame and guilt and feeling used and abused and 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 it's, it's a heavy burden because when they look at themselves they see someone who's just a mess and no good and unworthy of you They look at themselves and they say, God can't forgive me. No, I've, I've done things that, that are so wrong and so bad. Yeah, you can, Lord, and you will, and you do. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would break through those hearts of people who carry these heavy burdens and draw them to say, Jesus, I confess my sin and I need you. Live in me, forgive me, and give me the living water that you offer. May this be a time of freedom, being set free for people, and turning to you, and beginning this new year, depending on you for their salvation, trusting in you, in all of their life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.